Well, good morning, Soma Church. My name is Brandon Shields, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Soma. Welcome to uh, the teaching portion of our Sunday gathering. If you're new with us, we've been in a series for the last couple weeks called Come Holy Spirit, and we've been looking at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the community of faith. And this week, we've come to um, really begin to unpack what has been called the spiritual gifts, and specifically, uh, the more miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And uh, we're talking today about uh, the gift of tongues, or what one of my favorite authors on the subject calls the T-bomb. And so, uh, just to catch you up on where we've come from uh, with the Holy Spirit, uh, in John chapter 14, as Jesus is with his disciples for the last time, he promised them uh, the, to, to wait. He told them to wait for the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we fast forward a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the day of Pentecost, which is actually the day that we're celebrating uh, today as a church and the church calendar of the receiving of the Holy Spirit. But in Acts chapter 2, um, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falls on the early church. And we read in that, um, in that account in Acts 2 that as they received the Spirit, one of the byproducts of them receiving the Spirit is that everyone begins to speak in uh, what's called a tongue, or I think a better translation is in a language. And, um, and so we see that in Acts chapter 2. And if you go on throughout Acts, you see this happening where the Spirit will come and people will be converted to Jesus, and then they'll begin to speak spontaneously in tongues or languages. You see that three times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, when the Gentiles receive the Spirit, the non-Jews, they begin to speak in these languages. And then Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, when those believers uh, also receive Jesus and they begin to speak in tongues. Now, I know that many of us have, ha- have grown up in churches, and we have a wide variety of perspectives and opinions about the Holy Spirit and specifically uh, around tongues, and some of these gifts we'll be talking about in the next few weeks. And so I want to first talk about and address what uh, we at least would see as misguided teachings on uh, the Holy Spirit. Again, well-intended, but um, we'd say misguided teachings on uh, the gift of tongues. One of those uh, teachings is that if you don't speak in tongues, you may not be a Christian, like you're not even saved, or you're certainly not a good Christian uh, or a very spiritual Christian if you don't, or maybe a spirit-filled Christian if you don't speak in tongues. And one of the things, again, you see in the book of Acts is there's, there's about 22 accounts of conversions, people coming to faith in Jesus in the book of Acts, and only three of those actually involve people speaking in tongues. So it's a phenomenon that happens sometimes. Sometimes it's a byproduct of the Spirit falling, and sometimes it's not, not all the time. And so um, I, I, we, we don't, just don't see that in the Bible where uh, speaking in tongues is equated with some kind of higher level of like Delta Force Christianity, or certainly not, it wouldn't be the case that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. The second view that a lot of us in America at least have been uh, taught is that uh, speaking in tongues stopped with the apostles. Uh, this is a view known as cessationism. Um, and it's kind of this idea that the charisms, this word charismata in the Greek that we sometimes translate uh, spiritual gifts, um, that these charisms validated the apostolic word. Like in the early church when the apostles were preaching, the charisms kind of came alongside to be like a, a public validation of their ministry in early church missionary contexts. Or some people would even believe around the world in uh, places where people don't know Jesus, that these charisms can be in effect. But really now, they're no longer needed because the church is launched and we've got scripture and the canon of scripture is closed. This is the theological tradition that I actually grew up in. 
I remember going to seminary uh, as a new Christian, didn't know anything, even what really was a Holy Spirit, uh, or certainly not what he did in the life of the church. And uh, the seminary that where I went to taught this view, and they called it kind of the open but cautious. And I would say it was probably more on the cautious side than the open side. And you saw traces of this like in the early church fathers, but really this view of cessationism became a prominent teaching after the Reformation, Luther and Calvin and others, and really came to the forefront uh, in the West in the teachings of theologians like B.B. Warfield in the 20th century. And there's a spectrum of this, but basically uh, they believe that that this kind of died out after the apostles and we no longer need the gift of tongues. Now, I, I don't have time here to unpack and really deconstruct this view uh, in any kind of depth. If you want to learn more about that, we're happy to send you some resources. But I believe that um, this view is misguided, that there are good biblical and historical reasons for why um, this, this view has been discredited largely over the last couple of decades, specifically in America. Like biblically, you can look at places like 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul tells uh, the Corinthian church, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for Jesus to return. So the idea is that we live in the spirit age and that we have the full gifts of the spirit that will be available to us until Jesus returns. Matter of fact, one of the ways we we survive and we thrive in this time in which we live right now is because we have the gifts of the spirit to encourage us and sustain us and empower us for ministry and life in the world. Other places, 1 Corinthians 13 and others make the same case. So there's some biblical evidence and there's also a lot of historical evidence. I could give you person after person from the early church fathers up until the last few centuries who see the miraculous gifts, the full gifts of the Spirit still in operation. And so one of the things I want to say up front before we dive into this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we'll be looking at today, is that the gift of tongues are not in conflict with a high view of Scripture, right? You can love the Bible and you can love tongues or languages, right? So tongues are not in conflict or tension with Scripture, but they should be pursued definitely according to the guidelines of Scripture and not just how we have experienced them. And so the need is really, uh, as I think about my own tradition, is not really for caution. I think the need, biblically speaking, is actually for discernment. The Bible says to test spirits, to test these teachings. And so I think the the real call for us, imitation, is one of discernment, um, not being cautious or skeptical or cynical because we've experienced them a certain way. And so just to be clear, we at SOMA are what you call a continuationist church, not a cessationist church, but a continuation, continuationist church. We believe the gifts of the Spirit are still in operation. The Spirit is still giving us gifts to empower us and equip us to build us up individually and corporately as the body of Christ. And so with that being said as kind of a precursor, now I want to look specifically at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, probably the primary place where Paul teaches on the gift of tongues, or the gift of languages in the New Testament. So let me just read to you, starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. Paul says this, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, in chapter 14 here, just to give you a little bit of context before we go on, we'll work through this chapter here, uh, Paul is contrasting the gifts of prophecy and tongues, because there was a problem that he's dealing with here in Corinth. In in the city of Corinth, this urban, very multicultural setting, um, 
they had uh, kind of an obsession, you could say, with the gifts, uh, the more miraculous gifts, particularly with tongues. And there was kind of this elitism or like a superiority of those who spoke in tongues. They thought that they were better than other Christians who didn't speak in tongues or maybe didn't speak in tongues as frequently as they did. And so the real uh, nut of the problem here is around uh, the use of this gift in the public gathering. So the context here in chapters 12 to 14 is when Christians come together to worship in a Sunday gathering, right? So Paul says in 14, 26, when you come together, and that's a phrase he uses throughout this section to talk about public gathering, not your private practice of the way of Jesus. And so though Paul seems to be in this chapter kind of down on tongues or negative on tongues, it's really the use of tongues that's the problem, how they're posturing themselves as better that he's really addressing. He's actually fairly positive, as we'll see here in a moment, on the use of tongues. And so this larger section, Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church about uh, the healthy functioning of a spirit-filled body or community. That's actually our name, Soma, comes from that word body. What does it look like to be a spirit-filled body welcoming the presence and the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And so Paul says, earnestly desire, be zealous for the spiritual gifts. Now that word, spiritual gifts, is a really fascinating word in the Greek. It actually is one word that's translated oftentimes as two words, spiritual gifts. It's the word pneumatikos. Um, pneumatikos, uh, Gordon Fee, who's a New Testament scholar, says can actually mean a couple of different things. The actual literal translation is spirituals or uh, the things of the spirit or what we might call the spiritual gifts. And the word there is just the spirituals, right? The things that the Spirit does in a community. Now, if you go back to chapter 12, and you remember, Bobby talked about this last week, um, there are nine gifts that Paul lists, or nine things the Spirit does in a community when this, when this community is open to and seeking to be filled with the presence of the Spirit. Uh, now, these nine gifts are not exhaustive, right? There's actually a couple different lists in the New Testament. If you look at Romans 12, and um, here in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, and then Peter and Ephesians, some other places, there's at least 29 different gifts that are listed um, in total. And most scholars believe that that's not the full list. It's just illustrative of the kinds of things the Spirit does in a community. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul lists things like words of wisdom and words of knowledge and faith and healing and miracles and prophecy and discernment of spirits and tongues and the interpretation of of tongues. Now, I don't know how you grew up kind of learning about spiritual gifts, but when I became a believer and we started to, to learn about those, those spiritual gifts, uh, the way that it was presented to me was like through the use of spiritual gifts inventories or tests. And so it's kind of like this Marvel comic book view of the Holy Spirit. It's like everybody has a superpower. It's like Iron Man has his thing and Captain America has his thing. One person has, you know, like a word of wisdom. One person has the gifts of knowledge. And you kind of walk around with like your superpower cape on, you know. It's kind of like, okay, what do you have? I've got the gift of healing. Okay, I've got the gift of, you know, prophecy. And like, I don't know anybody that ever said that had the gift of miracles. But that's kind of the view. Or maybe it's like Enneagram numbers. Like I'm a one, I'm a three, I'm a five. I'm a, I'm a wisdom person. I'm a knowledge person, right? And there's this idea that I have, I possess this power and that I can use this power any time that I uh, need it or want it. And I don't actually think that's, that's the best way to view the gifts of the Spirit, right? Um, I think what Paul is saying here, and this translation really helps us, 
is that this is, these, are the, these are the things that the Spirit does in a community. And I think a better way to see the gifts and understand our own gifting is to see these as the things the Spirit does when he indwells people in the context of a faith community. That's why Paul says these are manifestations of the Spirit. These are not superpowers that you possess, right? Because if you possess the gift of healing, you should camp out at Riley Children's Hospital and just be using that gift all the time, right? Like, that's not how it works. We, we see that these are manifestations, revelations of the Spirit, characteristics of God himself, that when the Spirit indwells or comes upon or saturates a person or a community, we begin to see these. Like, you see this in the life of Jesus. He is a miracle worker. He heals people. He he uh, uses his gift of discernment. He prophesies, right? Like we see this in the early church. We see this um, throughout uh, church history, right? The, these gifts are available to the entire community, really to all of us, temporarily sometimes or sometimes in sustained seasons, if we're simply open and if God is gracious to grant them to us as there is need. I mean, that's really the key is like, if there is a need for me to exercise healing, somebody's sick, then God sometimes is gracious to gift healing to his community as a foretaste of the kingdom, like the future that's breaking into the present. And so when it comes to the gifts, we could say that everybody has some of the gifts. Nobody has all of the gifts, right? Like I remember a friend, uh, meeting a guy one time at a conference that uh, I was talking about his spiritual gifts, and he's like, I'm a spiritual toolbox, right? Like, I can just reach into the toolbox anytime that I want and pull out the gift and use it. Well, I don't think it's exactly what Paul's teaching here has in mind, that uh, everybody has some, nobody has them all, none are given to everyone all the time, and we all need each other. And Paul is going to go on to argue in chapters 12 and 13 that the goal of the gifts is maturity. The goal of the gifts is um, is love, right? All of these gifts must be exercised with a view towards building one another up in um, love, and that there's a diversity of gifts um, that lead to unity in this really strange kind of paradox. And so let me just put this into a definition for you. I'll throw this up on a slide. Spiritual gifts or spirituals are diverse expressions of God's presence and power given freely by the Holy Spirit to empower and build up Christ's body for the sake of the world. Those are spiritual gifts. Now, I want to look at or the things the Spirit does in community. I want to look at this gift of languages or gift of tongues, and I want to talk about and look at what Paul says, how this is supposed to function in a charismatic community. Because I, I'm just guessing, I'm taking a wild guess. If you grew up in the Midwest, you've probably not seen this done in a healthy way, right? You've either seen maybe like a preoccupation or fixation with this and it gets super weird, or maybe you've seen a total avoidance of this and an ignorance of this, and many of us have just not seen it done in a really biblical and healthy way. So let's, let's look at this together. First Corinthians chapter 14, Paul's going to tell us what, gifts, what, what the gift of languages should look like in a, in a church community. He says this, verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophecy or prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, 
how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So what does Paul have to say here about the gift of languages? Remember, he's comparing this with prophecy. So what Paul says is a couple of things. One, languages are spoken, tongues spoken to God, not to man. And the question is, what exactly are these languages? Are they human languages? Are they some kind of angelic language? Are these, you know, cognitive, like understandable language? What's the deal? And we don't exactly know what Paul has in mind here and what this really looks like. In chapter 12, Paul says there's different kinds of tongues that the Spirit gives, different varieties of tongues or languages. Chapter 13, he refers to speaking in the tongues of angels or the tongues of men. We have an example in Acts chapter 2 where a lot of people think that the apostles were speaking in an in a actual human languages, cross-cultural languages that they had never learned themselves. And so the question is, was the, was the gift actually their ability to speak or was it the gift, uh, the actual ability to interpret? We don't exactly know. But again, it's some combination, most scholars would argue, of heavenly languages or the, lang- the tongues of angels and human languages, actual known uh, living human languages. But the point is they're spoken to God in praise, not to men. This is not the same thing as prophecy. And we'll talk next week about the gift of prophecy and what that looks like in the community, because that's really Paul's focus here is more about words that are intelligible, that build up the community, not those that are done in in private here, as he seems to talk about tongues or languages. So languages are spoken to God, not men. Languages are not understood by the speaker or really by anybody. He says you speak in mysteries or revelations of the Spirit. They're not something that we understand even as we're speaking them, but they're understood by the Spirit of God who uh, uses them uh, to, thirdly, build up the individual, not the church community. Uninterpreted languages or tongues build up the individual, not the community, right? This is one of Paul's major points here is that uh, this edifies the individual, right? And, And sometimes we uh, think that's unnecessary or might even think that's wrong to think about edifying yourself. But like we all need encouragement, right? In our walk with Jesus, we need to be built up. This word edify is not like a word that we traffic in a lot. We don't use this in kind of our modern parlance, but it's a construction word. It's a construction word that speaks of building up something, building a house or building a roof was kind of a common uh, usage of it in the ancient uh, Greek context that Paul's writing in. And so think about us as a a temple or a house that God is building, a spiritual house, a spiritual temple that God is building for a home for the Spirit. God is using this gift of languages to build us up, to edify us, but it doesn't edify the community. And that's why I think Paul goes on to say, fourthly, he wishes everyone would speak in tongues, everyone would speak in languages, but not everyone will. There are clearly those in this community who are not speaking in tongues. And Paul says, man, I wish everybody could experience this kind of edification. It's not bad to want to edify yourself, right? You don't stop with self-edification or self-building, but it's not bad to, to, to need to be encouraged. And Paul says, I wish that everyone could have this experience. But then lastly, Paul says that prophecy, uh, Um, is greater than or better than or higher than languages or tongues because it builds up the community. It's it's something that people can understand. It's intelligible. It reflects the order that God desires for our public worship together. He goes on to use three metaphors to explain why prophecy is better than languages. First, he uses the example of a musical instrument. And then he uses the example of a military bugle. And then finally, that of foreign languages. 
So you think about a musical instrument. If you play any kind of a flute or a harp, Paul mentions in verses 7 to 11, in order for that to, to sound like a beautiful symphony, you need to understand a little bit of something about uh, the instrument, right? You need a key, and you need a, a rhythm or a melody for it to sound like a symphony, not a cacophony. And we all know if you have like a five or six or seven-year-old learning to play the violin or some kind of an instrument, you know what a cacophony sounds like. It's not a joyful noise to the Lord. It's, it's very much a, a grind on the ears. And that's what Paul's saying. If, 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 if we don't interpret tongues and we speak tongues and they're not intelligible, they just sound like uh, a cacophony and not a symphony. The second analogy he uses is that of the military bugle, right? Before they had the internet, before they had smartphones, before they had all this sophisticated military communications, uh, they just had a, a horn or a bugle, and they would blow that. And it was important to be able to blow that a certain way so that your troops would know when to charge or when to fall back. And if you didn't do that the right way, it could be dangerous. It could be deadly. And we certainly know uh, that there have been contexts that many of us have experienced tongues in a way that have been dangerous for or a threat to our spiritual health, not something that's built us up. And so Paul says it shouldn't be done that way. And then finally, he says, think about a foreign language. If you don't speak Spanish, right? I love going overseas. I've had an opportunity to live in Africa and visit the Philippines and Latin America. There's nothing more beautiful to me than sitting in a service and listening to the word preached or listening to music in other languages. But frankly, it does nothing to me because I only speak English, right? I'm one of those dummies that only speaks one language in the world. And, and so it doesn't edify me. It doesn't build me up because I don't understand the words. And that's what Paul's saying. Everything that's done in the corporate gathering should be done to build up the body. It should be intelligible. It should be understandable. It should be something that pushes us towards Christ in a way that we can understand. So let me just give you a definition then of tongues or languages. Um, the word here is, is glossa, uh, this word for languages, I think is the best translation. Um, Sam Storms, who's a pastor, I think says it best. He says, tongues is then the spirit-energized ability to pray, to worship, to give thanks, or speak in a language other than your own, one that you haven't learned. Paul continues his discussion about tongues or languages um, by then moving from what languages are to their use in public versus private contexts. And so um, he goes on to say in, in verses 13 and, and following, therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For I, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He goes on to say in verse 26, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. And then he closes in verse 39, this section. He says, so then, my brothers, earnestly desired a prophecy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. 
So what does Paul say about public versus private context for the gift of languages? First, he says that public language speaking should be limited, uh, only a couple people at a time. It should be orderly, right? This is not something that possesses us and that leads us to this out of control or uncontrollable laughing or falling on the floor, this kind of chaos of uh, sometimes what we see with the gift of tongues. He says, no, all things should be done with a sense of order, right? Because God is not a God of chaos, but a God of peace, Paul says. Um, It should be interpreted. If you have a tongue, if you have a language, a, a, a word to bring, you should pray, he says, that you may interpret or that somebody else there has the gift of interpretation would uh, interpret that message in the gathering. And then finally, he says it should be edifying. It should be something that builds up the church, right? It, it's prayer and it's praise. And what, what we're seeing here is if it's done publicly, we kind of are essentially, if it's interpreted, we are getting a window into a praise or an adoration. Like we see in Acts chapter 2, they're declaring the mighty works of God, right? And so tongues uh, or languages can be just a window into a person's praise or prayer to um, the Lord. And so um, that's the first thing. The second thing, he says, when you speak in other languages, your mind is unfruitful, right? This is, this is, and this is kind of hard to understand, and we don't know exactly what Paul means here. But it's something along the lines of, he says, you're praying or you're singing with your spirit, right? Not your cognitive, rational uh, brain, but actually with your spirit. And so Paul's saying there is a way to speak in a language that you don't know that can actually bypass the cerebral cortex of your brain where you can commune with God by means of the Spirit in a transcognitive or transrational way, and that it's actually possible for you to be spiritually edified and for you to glorify God without that experience having to be a cognitive, rational experience. And that's hard for us to understand in the West because we are so cerebral. We are so logical, right? We live in a post-enlightenment world where we value the life of the mind. And what Paul's not saying here is that the life of the mind doesn't matter or that this is supposed to be irrational, but what he's saying is it goes beyond, it's above and beyond the rational. It's something that that surpasses our ability to understand, but it's still possible for us to experience communion at a deep level, for the spirit to groan in words and phrases that we don't understand, and for that to be something that actually builds us up. So our mind is kind of in neutral, but our spirit is soaring and is communing with God. The third thing that he says is that private language speaking is a form of prayer and praise and is preferable to public language speaking. So he says, if you don't have an interpretation, you should just keep that to yourself, right? If you're in the gathering, you feel this overwhelming urge to speak in a language that you don't know, the gift of tongues. If there's no one to interpret or you can't interpret, you should, he says, just pray to God. Do that. In other words, Paul's saying, in private. I think the encouragement here is to do it at home in your own personal devotional time with God. And that's actually preferable to you standing up and saying something that would lead to confusion in the body. Or if there are unbelievers present, he says it actually can be just a sign to them that you're kind of crazy and doesn't make any sense and doesn't lead them to to want to worship Jesus. And so um, the fourth thing that's really interesting that Paul says here is that I speak in languages more than anybody. Like Paul himself says, this is like the ultimate kind of bomb drop here. Like he's, he's not to this point really mentioned his own personal private prayer life in any of the other letters. And so they're bragging about how they speak in tongues and how they're superior. And Paul says, hey guys, matter of fact, I speak more than any of you. And so this is kind of like Paul dropping the mic and saying, hey, if we're in some kind of a contest or a competition, I actually speak more than anybody else. And so he concludes by saying, 
don't forbid speaking in tongues, right? And that's why we're a continuationist church, because Paul specifically says, don't forbid people from speaking in languages or tongues. It's actually a command. And so we want to obey that command. And the question that I want to close with here is just, what does it look like for us to pursue that gift? What does it actually look like for us? Because Paul is, is very in our face here about how we should approach the gift of languages. Four times in chapters 12 to 14, Paul says, eagerly desire the things of the Spirit, the spiritual gifts, the stuff the Spirit does in our community. All of it, right? Not just part of it, not just the ones that are comfortable for us and our personality type, the gift of leadership or the gift of mercy or the gift of administration or the gift of hospitality. All of the gifts. Paul says, you should eagerly desire the Spirit to fully work in your midst, to build you up, to empower you, to strengthen you. This word here literally means be zealous for. It's the word from which we get our word zealot, or be jealous for this kind of uh, experience of the power of the Spirit. It's a command. This, to, to be zealous for tongues, to be zealous for languages, to be zealous for prophecy, for miracles, is not a sign of immaturity. It is actually a sign of longing to be filled with the Spirit. It's actually a sign of maturity not immaturity. And so I would say we need to move beyond just being open to this stuff and actually um, be zealous for it, be eager, uh, be eagerly desiring it, right? Like uh, in my marriage, um, there's a huge difference between being open to loving my wife and actually pursuing eagerly the heart of my wife. If I just told my wife, hey, you know what? I'm kind of open to like loving you. I'm kind of open to communicating with you. Kind of open to this relationship. Like that would not go well. My wife would feel as she should, uh, you know, hurt and betrayed. And it's the same thing with the Spirit. He says, I want you to eagerly desire me. Don't just be open. Don't just be cautious. I want you to pursue in love the gifts that I have for you. I long to deposit my Spirit in you, and I want you to earnestly go after it. And so, I don't know exactly what this looks like for you on the spectrum that you find yourself today, but I know that it's going to require us to take some risks, to create some space for earnest prayer and just practicing this gift of languages, asking for this daily. Like, I'll just be honest, um, I've never spoken in tongues before that I know of. I'm not a tongue speaker. I'm not a language speaker. I've not ever pursued that gift until a couple years ago. I didn't even know that gift was available to me. Um, And so, it's a gift that I, I want. Like if the Spirit wants that for me, if it's a gift from the Spirit, I want to pursue. I want to eagerly desire. And so for me, that's just looked like me over the last, like even weeks, just waking up in the morning and saying, God, would you give me this gift? Would you give me the, the fullness of your Spirit? I'm eagerly desiring. God, help me desire this gift. And would you grant me the gift of languages? God, would you grant me the gift of prophecy? God, would you grant me these words of wisdom and knowledge that are in line with your heart and in, in accordance with the teachings of scripture. I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking, and I'm trying to just eagerly open myself and desire what the Spirit longs to do with me. And I hope that that would be your experience as well. And I know that some of you, as we talked about earlier, have had bad experiences with the gift of languages. I know that the gift of prophecy in tongues has been traumatizing, that people have used that to abuse, they've used that to manipulate, to exploit. And for some of you, hear this teaching, it just takes you back to a really bad place. I know that's been an experience of certain friends of mine and family members of mine. Um, and so maybe for you, this becomes an opportunity for healing. This becomes an opportunity for prayer, right? Like we don't, 
we don't stop pursuing the gifts of the Spirit because somebody's abused those gifts. We seek to, to use those gifts and pursue them in the right way, in healthy ways that build up the body. So if this is ever being used in a community to establish a platform for somebody or to manipulate, to exploit, that is not uh, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness. Those should be the things that are happening as the gift of languages is being exercised in a community. So we shouldn't fear the gift of languages. We shouldn't fear the work that the Spirit wants to do. We should have a healthy respect for it, nonetheless, but we shouldn't fear it. I want to close with a couple, with a quote and then just a verse of Scripture here to encourage you. Jack Hayford, who's a pastor, uh, has this to say about pressing into uh, the gifts of the Spirit. He says, It began to dawn on me that given an environment where the Word of God was foundational and the person of Christ the focus, the Holy Spirit could be trusted to do both enlighten the intelligence, and ignite the emotions. I soon discovered that to allow him that much space necessitates more a surrender of my senseless fears than a surrender of sensible control. God is not asking any of us to abandon reason or succumb to some euphoric or ecstatic feeling. He is, however, calling us to trust him, enough to give him control. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to do what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. It's simply to surrender control and to say, I am not in control. I am not in possession. I am not the boss. The Spirit has things He wants to do in this community. And if, we don't, if we're not open, if we're not eagerly desiring, we are missing out on what God wants to do. We are missing the gifts that are necessary to construct to build the temple and the house of God with priests and priestesses that God wants to use to bring his life into our neighborhood and into the world. And so I want to encourage you and leave you with this verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1. And maybe this becomes an opportunity and a prayer for us just to hear these words. Paul says to Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. What he's saying is there are latent gifts inside of us that sometimes get neglected because of fear, right? Because we're afraid or we had a bad experience, but they're, they're still there and God longs to fan those, to breathe oxygen into those gifts and to allow the spirit to to drench us and saturate us with his presence such that we move out into the world using these gifts to build ourselves up and to build up the body. This is what the Spirit wants to do in a Spirit-filled community. And so let's be those that don't give in to fear. Let's be those that don't avoid something because we've never experienced it in a healthy way, but let's be those that say, yes, come Holy Spirit, fan into flame the fullness of the gifts. Build us up into the church and the body and the community that you long for us to be, not only just for our sake, but for the sake of our children, for the sake of our neighbors, and ultimately for the sake of the world. Let me pray over us and pray that God would do this work in our community this week. Father, we, we want to open ourselves to your gifts. We know that you are a good father. You long to, uh, because your spirit indwells in us, unleash the fullness of the gifts in us in ways that strengthen us and sustain us and empower us for the life and the mission that you have for us in the world. God, we need to be built up. We need this edification. We are weak. We are fragile. And, and God, you are a good father who longs to give good gifts to your children. So God, would you gift us 
with these pneumaticos, with these things of the Spirit, as scary and as anxiety-producing as they may be, God, I pray that this week we would have boldness, earnestly desire, ask and seek and knock, and that you would answer those prayers that are in alignment with your heart, that we may experience the fullness of God and the presence and the power of God through gifts like languages and prophecy and miracles not just for ourselves, not so that we can have a platform or be special or be elite or be better than others, but so that in humility we may use what you've given us to build up and to work for the common good of your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.